why am I doing this? I'm doing this because society wants me to do this. I'm mm-hmm. doing this because my mates want me to do this. This is bullshit. That's not going to happen. And I think it you show that little boy inside that was just like ruined by it. Mm-hmm. Sorry, it's still quite emotional. What an amazing story. What a cruel, amazing, twisting career. My next guest has one of the most fascinating journeys through business and through life that I think I've ever heard. She spent her life surrounded by a couple of people that that I actually consider to be inspirations of mine. One of them is Sir David Brailsford, who's been the sort of elite performance coach and cycling coach for Team Sky, which went on to win more than they were ever expected to win. He's the, I guess, the author of this this marginal gains thinking, which changed how business and sports teams function. The other person she was surrounded by throughout her career is Steve Peters, who a lot of you will know from the book he authored, The Chimp Paradox, which redefines from a psychiatrist's point of view how our mind works and where our behavior comes from. And the other male figure in her life that's important for the story you're about to hear is her brother, David Miller, who was this incredibly sort of highly regarded cyclist, British cyclist, who had this cruel twist to his career where he got involved in the doping scandal, which really left a stain on British cycling as we know it. And David Miller recounts this story of him being sat in this this cafe shop with David Brailsford and being tapped on the shoulder by three men wearing suits who would then raid his house and find syringes. And that was one of the key moments in British sporting history where I think in many respects, things have never been the same. And we always view our elite performers with an element of skepticism. But this is Fran's story. And Fran's story is one of tenacity. It's one of success. It's one of jumping off cliffs and figuring out how to build your skydiver as you fall. Her story is inspiring. It's peculiar. She went from starting her own business to spending, I think, 12 years at Team Sky, worked her way up to the very, very top. And when it became Team Ineos, she became the CEO, leading a predominantly male-dominated industry. And then, out the blue, in the middle of a pandemic, when retail was on its arse, she decided that she was going to change lanes and become the CEO of Bellstaff, which is a brand that has been struggling, that's been making losses, and then was then kicked up the rear end by COVID. She's brave. She is unusual. She's inspiring. She's tough. She describes herself, or at least she respects the idea of being a difficult woman, something we'll talk about. So without further ado, I'm Stephen Bartlett, and this is The Diary of a CEO. I hope nobody is listening, but if you are, then please keep this to yourself. Fran, I, I've done a lot of stalking of your your history, your past, your professional career. And uh, I was stalking your Twitter feed the other day, and I saw a quote that you'd um, you'd written, I guess, in in honor of your brother, um, David, who is a, a world-renowned professional, incredibly accomplished cyclist. And the quote said, following a boy who loved it so much, he got absorbed into the fabric of it and has spent a lifetime carrying the weight of the cruelty, wonder, brilliance, and tragedy it would bring him. Um, is ultimately what got you into the the world of cycling. Mm. I was slightly taken aback by some of those words, cruelty, wonder, brilliance, and tragedy. Can you explain why you chose those words? Oh, that's a big opening question. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, listen, my brother was, was and is a very talented guy. He was, we were, so when we were about 10 and 12, my parents got divorced. 
my dad went to live in Hong Kong and my mum stayed in the UK. I stayed with my mum, my brother went with my dad. And so when we were like kids, we'd cross in the air. So he'd come oh, home from Hong Kong, I'd go out. So he'd come home, I'd go out. And he had nothing to do when he was here because we'd moved. So we had no, he had no friends around. So my mum entered him into a cycling club. Um, and he'd go and he'd yeah, do the time trials. He was super good at it. By the, like, literally from like 15 to 19, he'd gone from never really riding a road bike to being like courted by nine of the biggest teams in the sport. And he got signed very young uh, by a big French team. And they kind of made all these promises to my mum about it. And he was obviously, you know, he was a kid. He was desperate to win the Tour de France and to go and fulfill his dreams. And he totally fell in love with the sport and he was completely enamored by it. And in the space of five years, he'd gone from this excited, talented, you know, brilliant kid to this damaged, incredibly sad, deep, deeply, deeply shamed young man. And it was like, how has a sport done that? Like, how is a, it's a, it's a, it's a game, right? Like mm-hmm. sports, a game, it's entertainment. How is it something that is fundamentally to entertain people basically ruined him, like taking him down to the core of who he was. And it just, and then he built himself back up and he's, you know, he's gone on to do incredible things, but it was just a, the sport has had this unbelievable impact on my life, on my brother's life, on my life, on everything, the, the decisions I've made and everything else. So I guess that's why I chose those words. Give me some detail on, you talked about the sport bringing him down to his core and, and ruining yeah. him. What caused that? So he went into the sport in 1998. He turned pro, which for any of your listeners who know anything about cycling was Festina year. So it was the year of the big Festina scandal where they raided all the hotel rooms and the guys all kind of protested and sat down on the road. And only a few of the sort of teams were able to finish because so many guys got pulled out of the race. And it was, the, it was the dawning of the EPO era. So it was the era where they discovered effectively, you know, athletes and coaches had discovered that you could use EPO in the same way that you used to be able to use altitude training to perform, to increase physical performance. Um, and it was just a transformative drug. It, it was, they couldn't detect it. They couldn't test for it. Um, they brought in some interventions like a hematocrit test. So if your hematocrit went over 40, uh, 50, you'd be pulled out of racing, but it was, a, it was a health check. It wasn't a doping check. And it was rife, basically. So when he, this young sort of dr- dreaming kid went into the sport, he he genuinely thought you could do it clean. You wouldn't ever have to cheat. I don't even think he really knew that much about doping at that point in his life. And pretty quickly, he realized that actually most of the guys at the very top were doping, that the doping was endemic, that the expectation was you would dope, that that was what you would, would need to do if you wanted to be a professional and you wanted to be any good. And he resisted it for a really long time. Like he he was a time trialer, which is, you know, race against the clock, basically only racing yourself. And so he really stuck to his time trialing because he was like, I can do that like with the technology, with aerodynamics, with focus on my training. It's a shorter period of time. There's less requirement to kind of be as cardiovascularly supreme as the guys who are trying to win the tour are. Um, and so he did very, very well time trialing, went to his first Tour de France and won yellow like day one. Um, and but but what was happening was behind the scenes this sort of erosion of his belief that he would be able to do it clean his his recognition that actually if he if he really wanted to take it seriously and try and win the tour he was going to have to cheat the people around him that the kind of network and the, the sort of framework around him was people who weren't looking out for him weren't thinking what's best for him weren't trying to work out how to make help him fulfill his potential they were trying to work out how to 
get him good enough to make enough money to win, you know, for them as a business. Mm-hmm. They, he was a commodity in their business. Um, and I like, I haven't actually ever told this story, but Francois Migraine, who owned Cofferties, which is like a, a company that basically does telephone loans. I don't know what they do now, probably, you know, online loans. But um, he had, he met my mum. So when, when we had all these teams that were sort of courting David, he met with my mum and he promised her that he would look after him. Like promised, looked, looked her in the eyes and said, I'll look after him. And, and yet he did nothing. Like he, he built a team that was allowed to just get on with it. He sort of closed his eyes to it. And actually when the big investigation into Cofferty started, it was Francois Migraine who effectively called out my brother. He was like, I think Moncoutier is probably clean, but David Miller, I, I wouldn't put my hand on my heart for him. Really? And it was like, you motherfucker. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And you, and he, he's 24 years old. Like what? He's the only exposure he's had to the professional sport is your team. So if that's what's happened, it's your team and your people. Don't get me wrong. David absolutely has to take responsibility for his decisions in that. Mm-hmm. But I, for one, know that when I was like 19 to 25, I wasn't making the best decisions I've made in my life. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I had some influential people around me who had they told me to do things. Or if, and it's that insidious thing, isn't it? It's a bit like kind of, I was listening to a, a book the other day about um, decision making and, you know, how if you look at like Nazi Germany and people say, oh, they were just following orders. And there was this big study done apparently where they put people in a room and they told them like, there's going to be some, there's going to be a student in there. It's a study. Mm. I can't remember the name. I think it was my grand or someone who did the study. And you're going to press this button. Don't worry because to shock them. To shock them. Yeah. And the, the shock's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's like, and 65% of the people would have pressed the button that would have effectively killed the person in the other room. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what? And that's the human condition, right? So this idea that we, that we would make a better decision or that we'd make a better choice or that we'd do it differently People seem to impose that on guys who decide to cheat in sport, decide to make these decisions. Like, well, how how dare you make that decision? It's like if you're in an environment and a culture where that becomes the norm, where that becomes what people do, this idea that you're going to be the one person who, and don't get me wrong, I know there are other people who do that and fair play to them. That is, that's impressive, you know, that you've been brought up in a certain way to enable you to make those decisions. But David was, he was fragile. He was impressionable. He was a dreamer. He was doing something he'd always wanted to do. He was passionate and desperate 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 to to be a success Mm -hmm. and I think he just got taken down the wrong path you know and you do you feel like you went through that with him as a close family um I'm trying to understand the impact it had on you being the sister and I know you you guys are very close yeah I mean the impact it had on me was I was he never he never came to he went to my mum and told her that he was vaping and, and they 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 sort of she just said, well, just stop, just come home. Like, don't worry about she, you know, sort of at the very beginning, he said, there's a lot of drugs. And my mum was like, well, just come home, go, go to art school. Don't worry about it. It's just cycling. Um, and yet he stayed and he pers- persisted. And then I think when he, in, in 2001, when he eventually made the decision to kind of cross the line, as it were, he, he had, a, he spoke to my mum, I think in that period. And she was just like, you, you know, you have, you have to stop, you have to come home. And he was a bit like, no, I want to do, you know, I want, I want to be successful. I want to go on this journey. He never had that conversation with me. All I ever saw was the kind of, it was like an erosion of him. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I could tell something was going on. I wasn't an idiot. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, he's probably, he's probably cheating. But he, we had all been indoctrinated into it as well. It was like, well, that's kind of, you turn a blind eye. You kind of think, well, you know, he's, He's doing really well. He's, you know, on the cover of all the magazines. He seems happy-ish. And it was only when he'd come home in the off-season and he'd come come and stay with me and my mates living in London. And he would would drink so heavily 
that you'd be like, okay, this isn't normal. You're a professional athlete. And he would, the, the depressions he'd sink into and the self-loathing that he, that would come out. And it's like in Vino Veritas, you know, that kind of this, and I'd be like, what on earth is going on here? And then eventually it kind of, you, I realized what was happening and I kind of felt responsible for never stepping in and saying something and never being like, you don't need to do this. I was just like, well, you know, if you're happy and you're enjoying it and you're doing well, who am I to judge kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think as a family, it kind of bonded and pulled us apart. Like we kind of, we all turned a blind eye to it. I think we've all got our demons to deal with from that perspective. Sure. Um, my dad, I think was, had a very different view of it all. My brother and my dad sort of, you know, have a, have an ongoing difficult relationship. My mum and my brother are very close. I'm very close to my dad and my mum. But, you know, so so as a family, we've kind of, it, it's definitely created divisions because everyone had a different view of it. And then for, in terms of the impact on me, I went into cycling. I ran my own cycling agency. I was working in the cycling industry. I totally rode the coattails of my brother's success. Mm-hmm. And I was like, shit, okay, now it's all going to come crashing down. Like he got arrested and put in prison. And, you know, I was like, oh God, this is not ideal. And I, I literally remember speaking to him afterwards and he'd just come out of, you know, the 48 hours in custody. And he was like, and I remember it being like a week and a half before the tour. And he said to me, don't worry, France, um, they're still going to let me ride the tour. And you know, you're like, oh, it still makes me want to cry. Because it's like, David, they're not going to let you ride the tour. <laughs> That's not going to happen. And I think it you show that little boy inside that was just like ruined by it. Mm-hmm. Sorry, it's still quite emotional but yeah so it just it just impacted everything it impacted all my decisions because at that point I was then like shit now I've got to go and into the office the next day and I've got to stand in the velodrome at events and I'm David I'm not David Miller's sister the kind of glory front cover of the magazine I'm that I'm the sister of this shamed cheating lying horrible human being who no one likes anymore and who has disgraced British cycling and is is a you know he he's like a complete social pariah and I'm like, oh, shit, okay, now I've still got to go and do my job. And did you feel that from yeah, people? Massive. You felt the yeah. judgment? And- yeah, massively. People were really, and it was in the days of forums, you know, like when forums were a really big deal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'd be like, okay, I'm just going to go and have a little bit of a look on a forum and see what people are saying. And I'd see people I work with commenting, you know, people who were at the velodrome who were like doing the timing at my events or, and they all, you know, li- literally like people wishing him dead. But, you know, it was just like, it wasn't cool. And I, and yeah, I really felt it. I felt it for him. I didn't, I wasn't embarrassed because I was like, you know, it is what it is. He's made a set of decisions. He's paying the price for it. Um, but it was at that point, sort of about six months after that, that I was like, okay, I probably can't represent him anymore because if I have to have another conversation with a journalist, an ignorant journalist about this kind of binary right or wrong conversation where you're like, this is not how life works. Mm-hmm. I'm going to end up punching someone in the face. So I should probably <laughs> stop doing that. <laughs> Speaking of punching people in the face, <laughs> <laughs> I heard you. No, um, I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. No, um, I heard. It just felt like a good turn towards one of the things that I, I saw you share online, which was this article about being a difficult woman oh, and yeah. the importance of um, dispelling this sort of like niceness aura that women typically. Um, are associated with in business that I think the article was suggesting holds them back. Mm. How important has that been, especially, you know, in it, when you were dealing in an industry, which is pretty much full of men and you got to the very, very top as the CEO of, of Ineos, how important was it to 
be willing to punch people in the face, being a little <laughs> bit difficult at times? As it's such an interesting question because that whole being a difficult woman, I think is the older I've gotten, the more I've kind of explored feminism and explored kind of the, the sort of female condition, the human condition. It's like women are judged very differently for, for behaviors that in men would be seen as completely normal. So, you know, there's the sort of famous kind of meme that's the sort of, you know, men are assertive, women are chippy, you know, men are confident, women are arrogant. You know, it's like the same behavior gets viewed very differently through a very different lens. I've never filtered myself. It's not been anyone who's ever met me knows that I don't really come with a filter. Um, and I think it's really, really important that young women recognize that they don't have to apply a filter. You don't have to be the quiet one in the room. You don't have to. I remember reading um, Cheryl, Cheryl Sandberg's book about lean in and it was like, um, you know, when young women will come into a meeting room and they won't sit at the table. Like They physically won't sit at the table. They'll sit like at the sides. And I was like, fuck off, who does that? And then I would go to meetings and I'd be like, I'd noticed that like the 19, 20, 21 year old younger women in the room, they'd wait for the guys to sit down. They'd be like, what the fuck are people, why are people doing that? Mm. And it, you just, you, until you realize it's happening, you don't realize it's happening. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I've, I've always felt quite strongly that you just need to be yourself, be confident, be willing to get, get told you're a bitch, get told you're, and don't get me wrong, when I was younger, I was actually a bit of a bitch. I probably, I probably didn't um, measure that behavior. I was a bit like, well, it's just who I am and everyone needs to suck that up. And actually you still have to be polite and have manners and you still have to recognize that being aggressive is actually just sometimes being aggressive. It's not being assertive. <laughs> and that balance, I think I've learned as I've got older, but I think it's, yeah, I think women are judged totally differently for behaviors that men would be absolutely, it would it would almost be uh, sort of respected in a man for certain behaviors. Mm -hmm. And in a woman, it's, it's reviled. There'll be, there'll be young women listening to this and they'll be thinking, do you know what, I'd, I'd love to be like that, Fran, and I'd love to be a bit more, you know, assertive and et cetera, et cetera. But I just, you know, it's just not who I am. And so kind of the question that popped into my mind was where did that, you know, some might see it as confidence, but it's like a confidence in being your true self, right? Where did that, do you know where that came from in you? Where, was it, you know, <sighs> is it experience? Is it something yeah. that happened in the household? Is it your mother was taught you that behavior? Your father? Yeah, I think it's probably half nature, half nurture. Like I think I, I, you know, my mum tells a story about when I was little and I was at a, you know, I'd, I'd just literally go off and speak to people. Like she'd, she'd be sat at, you know, the bar, you know, on a holiday and she'd want to know what's going on with a couple over there. She'd be like, Francis, go and ask them what they're doing. And I'd be like, okay. <laughs> and off I'd go and chat to them. So I think I've always been very innately confident and that doesn't, that's never gone away. Um, but equally, I think I've, I've been very lucky. I've been very blessed. I've worked with people and in and around people where I've been allowed to be myself. I've been allowed to kind of grow up and make mistakes and fail and be a bit of an idiot and get told you're being a bit of an idiot and not not have that be a judgment upon me and limit me. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's really interesting that kind of, you know, being assertive or being being your true self has become a bigger and bigger thing that people talk about. And actually being your true self doesn't mean you have to be assertive and confident. It means you have to be your true self. Yeah, yeah. And for a lot of people that is a bit more insecure, a bit more, and that's fine. Bring, you can bring that to the table. You know, you can be an emotional person. You can be, lack a bit of self-esteem and just be honest about that. So for me, I think it's just partially how I was brought up, but more the people I have been surrounded by on the journey of my life and career. I've been incredibly blessed that they have, allowed me to make a lot of mistakes and correct and course correct me as mm -hmm. I've gone on. That that point about being assertive and being direct and being open and honest, you know, um, 
I was, I was actually chatting yesterday about one of the, the, how I've changed over the last 10 years from like the kid at 18 to the kid at 28. And the, the key thing I said to my team is like the big change that I've seen in myself is I'm way more direct yeah. and I'm not sure why I'm doing that. I'm like, I don't know whether I'm, it's because I've got so many things to do that I'm trying to save time at all times. Um, I'm way more honest with my feedback and there's this sort of fine line between being an asshole and being honest and direct and trying to be time efficient and like realizing that sometimes your feedback or the way you say things might hurt people's feelings, but that's secondary to what we're doing here. Um, how have you towed that line? I'm, I imagine from what you've said, it's more difficult as a woman to, to, because people will, you know, they'll, they'll determine the same behavior to be a really negative thing. But how do you tow the line between being like direct and firm, which is so important in my opinion, when you're dealing with teams and especially if you're dealing with teams of, uh, you know, high testosterone, testosterone men, how do you toe that line? And, and also, I guess the more important question for me is, do you agree that it's an important trait to have? Okay. So have you read a book called Radical Candor? It's up there on my bookshelf somewhere, but I've not read it yet. Okay. <laughs> so yes, I do think being honest is important. I think being a dickhead to people is not acceptable. And so I think I, I think honesty can get veiled. Sorry, being a dickhead can get veiled by I'm being honest, right? Mm. Like, well, I'm just being honest and it's feedback and you should take it. It's like one of the sort of best lessons I've ever been taught and, and one of the most influential people in my life by a mile is Steve Peters, um, who's a forensic psychiatrist. Yeah. And he always says, like, you have to be compassionate. Like, even if you're telling someone they're losing their job or, you know, if you're having to give someone really honest, be compassionate, be be sensitive to the fact that you're going to get a better response from someone if you're just nice to them. You know, you can say some really, really shitty things to people and it, and it get a horrible response or you can say shitty things but get a really positive response back because you do it in a different way so I think it's really crucial to be honest it's really crucial to be authentic but that doesn't mean you get a license to be a dickhead mm -hmm. and have you is there a place for aggression and anger and being annoyed in business in your view no N not not ever uh, well, you can you can feel those things, but I don't think you can inflict those things on other people. No, I don't think that's acceptable. It's um, it's remarkable how many of the world's most sort of admired leaders, when you read their biographies and stuff, you find out how much of a dickhead they are. Like Steve Jobs was a good example where I, I was told, you know, from a friend that they basically had to put him in his own own building and warn people that worked in that building that you know the way Steve was. And uh, Elon Musk in his biography is yeah. is is very very similar, but uh. The reason I asked you about Radical Candor is when I read it, it made a lot of sense to me about, about people like that. So that she basically describes this quadrant where effectively you've got how much you care about people and how sort of willing and honest you're, you're able to be. And so if you're very, very honest, but you don't care about them at all, then you, you're basically an arrogant arsehole. Mm. And if you really, really care about them, but you're really, really honest, then you're, you're radically candid. But if you really, really care about them and you're not honest, then you're kind of it's almost like a malignant empathy. Do you know what I mean? It's like, mm. I'm going to be really nice to you, but because I'm not going to be honest with you, you're not going to develop. Mm. And so that for the first time, and she said in a business, it's better, it's way better as, as much as it's counterintuitive to be the arrogant asshole because actually the feedback is what's important. So if people are getting the feedback and they're being told the truth, they are like, some people might not be able to handle it, but the people who can handle it will develop and get better. So it's worse to be empathetic and not be honest than it is to be an arrogant asshole. And I was like, oh, that's why there's so many arrogant assholes uh. in the world. Because actually, it does work. Like, on the, and genius, 
you know, it forgives a lot, right? When people are geniuses, they can behave very differently and they get away with it because they're geniuses. And mm. there is merit in that. And I think if people are very, very, very honest with you and give you brutal feedback, as long as you're like able to take it on board, you'll get better. Mm. But if someone's lying to you and saying, you're doing a great job, Stephen, don't worry about it. It's absolutely fine because they don't want to hurt your feelings. You're never going to develop. It's true. You you switched from working at Ineos over to Bell Staff um, quite f- relatively recently, um, and I, I was reading. I think and I was listening to one of the the podcasts you had done, and you talked about how you'd worked in cycling pretty much your whole life. It was your pretty much your everything in terms of your professional experience. Um, I've also recently quit my job, and uh, how does it feel? Uh, everything you feel everything right you feel you know it's bittersweet you, you feel excited on one hand you're unsure about the future but I, I trust myself enough to know that I'll figure it out because I always have um, but yeah all, all feelings um, I guess my question for you is and, and the bit that I found particularly interesting is people will do a thing for 10 years for five years whatever and then they'll tell themselves that they are that thing mm-hmm. they'll like give themselves the label I work in cycling I'm a cycling person yeah it seems to be incredibly difficult especially if they've been in that industry for a long time to then take on a different label you're now working in fashion and with a whole new set of challenges completely outside of your comfort zone to some extent in some ways how did you make that switch how did it feel tell tell me all about it um it's again i'm going to reference steve peters but i remember because i was so wedded to my job in cycling like i lived and breathed it i loved it i cared deeply about the people it like had this it was so wrapped up in my identity, but I hadn't necessarily got a huge amount of satisfaction out of the job over the last two or three years for a whole host of reasons, nothing to do with the team, just personal development wise. And every time I spoke to Steve, he'd be like, well, then why don't you just leave? I'd be like, because I don't know who I am if I leave the cycling team. Do you know what I mean? And, and that was a, always a much longer conversation than that. But what effectively I was saying was, I don't know who I am if I'm not that. And he kept, he said over and over again, you are will be whoever you go on to be. That's not going to change. You are still there. You're letting this thing influence all these views about yourself. You're letting it influence what you, your value, your worth, your, you know, your sort of substance, your contribution to life. Like you're, you're letting, it's a job. Mm. He's like, it's a job. And I was like, you don't get it. You don't understand. It's more important than that. And you know what, when I got asked to go and do bell stuff and I left and it broke my heart, like I cried my eyes out. And I started at Bell Staff and I, I felt awful saying this, but within 48 hours, I was like, oh my God, I love it here. And I love the people here. And this is brilliant. I'm so excited. And actually it is just the job. That was just the job. And yes, I miss it. And yes, it was incredible. And yes, I loved the people and I still love the people, but it's just the job. It's not my family. It's not who I am. It's not my identity. It's just a part of my life. And I'll be eternally grateful for having done it. But now I've got a new challenge. And I was like, I'm really pleased I did it when I did because everyone I think had been saying to me for a long time, you know, once you leave, you'll be like, oh, I should have done this five years ago. And I don't feel like that at all. I feel, you know, I did that for the right amount of time. Mm-hmm. I loved it. I've banked it. Moving on to something else. And it's that point there about thinking that that job was your identity that yeah. I think really like holds people down. Yeah. Because um, because you're right, jobs are their fa- friends, yeah. their community, they are purpose. Yeah. They are, as you say, they're your identity. Um, and that's dangerous. Really like dangerous. that's dangerous, you know, because actually they're not, they're not, you, yeah. they're not your identity. And no matter how much you love it, no matter how passionate you are about it, if you, it, and this would be the lesson I would sort of give to myself, the sort of, it doesn't matter. It's a job. You're being paid to do it. It's a job. And, and I would have railed against that even a year ago. Like, no, it isn't. It's more important than that. 
And you know, as soon as you, as soon as I left, I was like, and my brother always used to say to me, your team aren't your family, your team aren't your family. And I never really understood what he meant because I was like, well, they are my family. Like, you know what I mean? I love them, they are my family. And they leave me like, oh no, what he means is your family are there forever. Your family are wedded and you, you can't unpick your family. They are, they're something that's, whereas when you leave a job, you, you take away the memories, you take away the happy times, you take away the good stuff, but the fabric of who you are doesn't change. Mm-hmm. And that's what I, I try and do. I just finished writing my book on, there's a chapter on this idea of labels and me trying to resist these labels to make sure that I continue on my journey of challenge and keep myself, you know, stimulated and I don't get to, you know, a certain age and feel like I'm having a midlife crisis because I don't know who I am and I can't leave and I don't have any new skills. Um, and to really sort of realize that the label I have is me. It's like Stephen. I'm a guy with a bunch of skills and experiences and I can apply these skills and experiences to a bunch of different challenges. I'm not social media CEO. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that I find really liberating. So I quit. I started DJing. We're doing this, putting on this theatrical play. I'm just trying to do all of the things that I think I shouldn't be able to do. Right. But speak to me about the challenge. So you you decide to take this job at Bellstaff and it is a big challenge. It's it's widely reported that Bell Staff has been is had had a, you know struggled across the years. It was rec- it was acquired in I think 2017. Yeah. It was making losses then, and the losses have I think narrowed over the last couple of years to some extent. But it's a big challenge, right? Mm-hmm. A big challenge. It would have been much easier to take a different job. <laughs> so first and foremost, I didn't take it. I was I literally had a conversation with my chairman at Ineos um, about, you know, maybe, maybe over the next couple of years, I want to think about moving on and doing something different. And when we, when Dave B comes back from the tour, this was in September, so when he comes back from the tour at the end of the season, I think I'd like to sit down and have a chat with my chairman and my boss, Dave, about my future. That was the sum total of my conversation. And literally a week later, I got a call saying, Jim would like you to be the CEO of Bellstaff. And, you know, with the best will in the world, when Jim Ratcliffe asks you to do something, you don't kind of go, mm, let me have a think about that. <laughs> and I just thought, okay, well, what an opportunity. And and I went for it, but I didn't, I wasn't looking to change. I wasn't, I hadn't like planned to move on. So that was in some ways, whilst it was quite traumatic, the sort of three or four weeks of, because I literally, I got phoned like on the 16th of September and I was enrolled on the 1st of October. Wow. So it was like, yeah, like two weeks of just. Why did you want to have the conversation though when Dave got back? Because I wanted to, so I wanted to, I'd sort of been thinking, like I said, about the conversation with Steve, about kind of, it, I'm not sure if I'm happy doing this job anymore and if I'm not sure if I'm fulfilled. I'd kind of reached the point, sort of middle of last year, where I was thinking, you know what, I do need to start thinking about my future and my life and my career. And I don't know whether that's always going to be in cycling. And I don't know whether the CEO of the cycling team is 100% what I want. So I wanted to speak to my chairman first to kind of sound him out. And then when Dave gets back from racing, so I didn't want to interfere with the racing, have a conversation about my future. So I just literally put it on the, ra- the radar sure. of the chairman. And probably a little bit out of frustration for myself as well. I was a bit like, I want to feel like I'm moving this on because otherwise I'm going to sit and not do anything with it. Do you know what I mean? I'm going to... Did you feel stagnant yeah. in the role? Is that the main, the crux of what you're getting at? What was the... Tell me if I can relate. Uh, I... <laughs> <laughs> I felt... So I had done what is effectively 20 years in pro cycling. It, like you say, it was all I knew. It's all I'd done. I know everybody in it pretty much. You know, I've been in and around it my whole life. I'm David Miller's little sister. It's like, you know, part of my DNA. We got, a, we, and I loved being part of Team Sky. Like we did that for 10 years. And it was, I sort of always used to say, cut me in the middle, I'd bleed blue. And I absolutely loved it. And then when Sky said they were out at the end of 2018, I was like, right, I'm done. I'm out of here. I'm not going to do this anymore. I spoke, went straight to B. I was like, 
it's been amazing. I've loved it, but let, I'm going to, once the team stops being Sky, I'm going to go. And he was like, okay, cool. I don't think he believed me, but he was like, okay, cool. And then we, he said to me, look, would you help at least find a new sponsor? Let's see if we can find a new sponsor. He's a bugger like that. So I was <laughs> like, okay, I'll try and help you find a new sponsor and then I'll move on. And then, you know, February comes 2019, you know, he's, he meets Jim. Jim decides that he wants to acquire the team. It, you know, he, Jim's arguably one of the most successful businessmen in the world. Mm-hmm. We went and met with him and talked about, you know, the design of the kit and everything else. And I was like, I'm going to get sucked into this <laughs> shit. Um, and, then, and then one of the other senior managers in the team decided to leave and go and work for another team. And Dave B was like, would you stay? You can be CEO, which was what I really wanted to be. It's a massive opportunity. And I was like, okay, I'll stay. And I think that was the point of the decision there that I was like, you know, this is a big career decision for me that I'm staying again. I told all my mates I was going to leave. I was like, you know, this is it this time, this time I'm going. They're like, mm-hmm, okay, Bran. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I stayed at Ineos and then we worked on the 159 project. So Elliot Kipchoge sub to our marathon. And Dave obviously was the project lead on it all. He was the CEO, my, my boss, um, but he very sadly got prostate cancer in that period. So he was off doing the Tour de France. Then he had to go and have surgery. And so I took on like a deputy CEO role, kind of delivering the sort of vision that he'd come up with. And he'd structured all the performance team, but then I was doing the delivery of the event, everything from kind of working with the London Marathon team to supporting the performance guys to doing all of the engagement piece and everything else. And I loved it. As I felt like I was working 18 hours a, a day for like what was about five, six weeks in the build up to the first of all the test event and then through into the actual event. Mm-hmm. And I just loved it. Totally different, totally new challenge, new people, different approach, fresh. It was, I was like, I was on literally cloud nine. I couldn't have loved it more. And I was working so hard. Like I was literally crippled by it, but I loved it. And I came out the other side of it, not so much just because we'd done it, obviously, I mean, that was incredible, but it just really made me realize that I was just, going through the motions in in the cycling job. I was just, I was ticking over. I was really comfortable. I was good at it. I loved it. I was happy. I liked the people, but I wasn't growing. I wasn't developing. I wasn't learning new stuff. And I wasn't kind of, and I'd been going at a million miles an hour, you know, sort of in the team, like on all these stuff where I was helping other people develop and helping other people achieve their potential and helping other people kind of you know, rescue their reputations or enhance their reputations. And I was a bit like, what do I want to be doing? Like, mm. why am I, I'm not, none of this has been about me. And even actually cycling is a little bit about David. Do you know what I mean? I was on kind of this journey to this sort of save young British talent from going through what David went through. And it's like, actually, what do I want to do? Maybe I want to do something different. Mm. And that just planted a seed really. And I think I probably went and spoke to the chairman, you know, if I'm honest, I went because I thought, I want to go and do something different. I'm ready. I'm ready to move on. I'm ready to do something that's not this anymore. And it was all—it was almost like a kind of involuntary. I think everything else about me was like, just stay because it's comfortable and it's easy and you get good money and it's, you know, no, nothing's going to, nothing bad's going to happen. But my like soul was like, you've got to, you've got to go and do something else now. And it was literally like in the space of two weeks, it was like, boom, I'm, I'm out of here. So it was that see, it, it, almost identical to me in a sense of something niggling at you. And then for me, there was like a trigger moment where I was like, <laughs> I was like, send an email. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then you send it like, well, fuck. And then, but that that idea of being able to throw yourself into uncertainty, it's yeah. it's like throwing yourself off a cliff when you were like cushy in the house on the side of the cliff. Yeah. And you're just like, oh my God, I'm going to jump. And you're throwing yourself off into the unknown in in the hope that, 
So you'll build your glider as you fall and then land somewhere better. And a lot of people can't do that. Like most people can't do that. How do you, how did you feel though about, because I found it really traumatic. Like Mm. I kind of, I felt like, oh, first of all, I felt quite out of control. It was like, I'm out of control of this now. Mm -hmm. I literally said goodbye to my team who I'd worked with for 10 years and got on a train, woke up the next day and went into Bellstaff and like, hi, I'm your new CEO. And I, and the, the trauma of kind of, all of it it felt I had to move out of my house I had to go and do say goodbye to people do have a different email yeah, I yeah, had yeah. the same email yeah. my whole life do you know what I mean it's like yeah, all that kind of stuff it just consider. doesn't shouldn't yeah. be that important but felt yeah. really significant yeah. how did you feel did you find it traumatic or not so I, I I'd already I'd quit a business when I that I was my baby as well when I was I started a business at 18 quit that one when I was 21 so I'd been through it once before so when I earlier when I said the key thing for me was trusting myself I've done this before I know the feelings. I know that I don't know what my future holds. But when I did that when I was 21, it led to this even bigger business that was 200 times bigger and 200 times more successful. So that was, that's been this guiding thing in my life. Like I dropped out of university after one lecture and it worked out. So when you have those case studies, you think, do you know what? I have no idea what the future holds, but I'll back myself to figure it out now. And um, that's because I'd done it like three times before. So I imagine the next time in the future, if ever, that you decide to jump ship yeah. from Bell stuff or whatever, you'll have that case study or that evidence in yourself that you've been. Yeah. And that that I think will calm you a little bit. The first time I quit, I was sort of all kinds of emotions yeah. and worry and and not sure what I was now and all those things. Yeah. But slightly easier the third time. I'm a bit of a prolific quitter. I think it's a really underrated skill. Yeah. People talk a lot about starting as if it's the be all and end end all of success, but quitting is the thing you do right before, right? You start something new. So you are always one decision away from taking your business to the next level. And a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite, who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already, NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud, so you can access it from anywhere. And the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky, and it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode. I was reading about this winning behaviors <laughs> role you, you took on, which is a very curious title. Yes, it is. What was your remit as the head of winning behaviors at Team Ineos? So it was it was when it was Team Sky. Okay. Um, but same, same. It, um, so basically 2010, we first started racing. We'd started the team and we sort of begun the journey of starting the team in 2008 off the back of the Beijing Games. Started racing in 2010. We were shit, like embarrassingly shit. And we'd been like smoke and mirrors and like, you know, we kind of, we had the big bus and we had all the money and we were sponsored by Sky and it's like, oh, we're going to be amazing. And we were rubbish so we totally reset everything and and dave b to be fair to him he's like a master of okay we're, we're going this way it's not working we're going somewhere else like he's he's incredible at it and so he totally shifted the way that we're going to run the team we took a totally different approach we started to be very successful in 2011 we'd obviously set the objective when we announced the team that we were going to try and win the tour de france with a clean british rider in five years and that was in start of 2010 
Bradley won the tour in 2012. So within the space of two years, three years, effectively, we'd done it. The following year, Chris Froome won it. Mm. And we had gone from being this team that was like on a mission, like heads down, asses up. And we were going like there was nothing was going to stop us. We were full on. To su- and so when people sign up to that, you know, people are signing contracts in 2010 with a team that doesn't exist, that has never raced on the road before, that comes from a track background, that's full of Brits who aren't historically that famous for road cycling. They were, they were signing a kind of, you know, they were, they were adventurers, right? They were like these bold, ambitious, this is a bit batshit crazy, but we'll do it. Mm. When people were signing contracts at the end of 2013, they were signing with a team that had won the Tour de France twice, that was arguably the most dominant team in the sport, that had gone on, you know, sort of achieved this inc- these incredible feats. And they had a different expectation of what they were joining to what we were. And we sort of suddenly realized that actually, if we were serious about continuing and continuing to be successful codifying what had got us where we were was going to be crucial and we'd also seen for those of your listeners who are cycling fans we'd had the Bradley Wiggins and Chris Froome's kind of divide so Brad had obviously come first in 2012 but Froome had come second Bradley didn't even Bradley never rode the tour again so Bradley didn't ride in 2013 Froome did and he went on to win and you started to see this divide in the team where it's like well I'm team Bradley or I'm team Froome and it's like well no check your paycheck your team sky Mm -hmm. and that that kind of actually, who are we? What do we stand for? What do we expect from people? What, what do we need to be able to do to be the best in the world at this? Needed codifying and it needed it needed a way of a sort of charter almost to tell people this is how you're going to have to do this. And really it was about eradicating losing behavior. It was about saying to people, bitching, backstabbing, saying you're team Froomey or you're team Brad or, you know, criticizing people behind their back or whatever. That's not acceptable. But you, being head of losing behavior would have been shit. So we called it wrong behavior. <laughs> <laughs> so it was all about creating a set of behaviors for the organization that enabled us to say to people, this is what it means to put this jersey on. This is what it means to be a part of this team. It's not just about, you know, the glory and the winning. This is hard graft. This is, you know, it, it was arguably the hardest thing I've ever done, you know, working in that environment. It's it is unrelenting. It is, it, I mean, it's brilliant and it's amazing and incredibly good fun, but it's hard, hard work. And you've got to go all in. You know, this isn't this isn't for the faint-hearted. Mm. And so the whole winning behaviors thing was about creating an environment where we could give people the parameters that we expected them to live by, but also ensure that they felt supported, safe, able to deliver their very best in an environment that is actually very high pressure. So that was my job, effectively helping Dave create the behaviors in the first instance with the whole team and then helping keep them alive within the business. What were some of those, you mentioned a couple of them there about not being a backstabber and understanding the importance of hard work. What were some of the other, um, let's just just focus on losing behaviors. Some of the the traits or some of the threats to success that you'd see in the team. I'm thinking this from an organizational standpoint as like someone that's worked in business. So we separated them into five different areas. We had self, team, um, communication, continuous improvement, and uh, what was the other one? Oh, it's gone. Anyway, so, uh, quickly, how quickly <laughs> you move on, right? Um, but the, the, so they were, t- self was all about identifying your own emotions, managing your own emotions, being in control of your own emotions. So a losing behavior of that would be losing your shit, you know, being aggressive and arrogant with people, not being able to recognize when you were too emotional to be in a high performance environment. We have this, the whole chimp model, mm-hmm. you know, Steve's philosophy around that is there's nothing wrong with being emotional. There's nothing wrong with having a chimp, but you have to know when to get out of the room if that's what's going on. Don't bring your emotion into an environment where you're expecting people to perform at their very best. Mm-hmm. So that kind of management of self 
absolutely critical. And then team was all about the impact that you have as a team member. You know, I think people kind of think teams are this kind of static thing that you create a great team and that's it. It's like, as you will know, having run six very successful businesses, teams are like these organic, ever-changing, you know, you could bring one person in and it have a massive impact on the team. You take one person out, it can ruin a team. Do you know what I mean? So there's sort of the dynamics of a team and your role within that are crucial. So, you know, not wearing your team kit, you know, wearing a slightly different trainer, you know, um, criticizing the team, not buying into the sort of collective opinion, not sort of, we, Dave B has this really big thing about, he'll listen, he'll seek counsel from everyone. He'll listen to everyone's opinion. He wants to get to a collective opinion. He wants to get to a collective view of what the right direction is. But ultimately, if we can't get there, he'll make the call. And then you've all got to be on the bus, hmm. non-negotiable. If you sit in a meeting room and you agree with something and you say, yeah, okay, I, whilst I don't agree with it, I buy in. You know what I mean? I've given you my point of view. You've, you've said it's not what, the way we're going to go, but I buy in. And then you walk out the room and you're like, I don't fucking buy that. That is that is one of the worst losing behaviours you can have because it's insidious and it, it goes around, you know, a whole organisation can be virus. destroyed by the yeah, it's like a virus. So it's things like that. Fascinating. I am, um, you don't do a lot of public speaking, right? You do Used some... to, haven't done it for a while now, actually. Yeah, a bit like white collar crime, I think sometimes. But yeah, it's, um, I, I sort of, I used to love doing it. Like I really did used to love doing it, but I've also... I feel like the bit that I talked about, which is some of the stuff I've just said, I feel like that's a bit of my past now and I want to sure. build a new build a new path for myself before I figure out telling people about it, if that makes sense. Yeah, same. I don't want to take talks on social media anymore if I can help it, to be honest, for yeah. the same reasons. Yeah. Um, you, you talk a lot about Dave as well, Sir David Brailsford. Yes. Um, and very fondly. I think yeah. a lot of your tweets from my stalking were were centred around him and, and things that he was doing. Yeah. What are some of the the key qualities of, of of him that have made him so successful and his mindset or, you know? Oh, big question. I mean, it, uh, him and Steve Peters are the two most influential men in my life, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, you know, they they are symbiotic because they are, I think if Dave hadn't had Steve, he maybe wouldn't be who he is. And I think if Steve hadn't met Dave, he maybe would be a slightly different version of himself. So they, they complement each other brilliantly. Dave is, is a brilliant man manager. He's, he's incredibly visionary. He's very brave. You know, you said the thing about jumping off a cliff and hoping you get your gliders. You thought Dave's the king of that. Dave's like, we're going to go, that, we're going to go and achieve that. And everyone's like, fuck off. And he's like, come on, let's go. And he, and people are like, okay. <laughs> and because he's so, he's so bold with it. He's so confident with it. That he, and he's an incredible leader that people would literally, I mean, I would have followed that man off the edge of a cliff. Mm. And I think that he has that quality in him, you know, he's unrelenting, you know, anyone who's worked with him, he's difficult, you know, like all geniuses are, he's a, he's a tricky guy. He's, Why? Um, How maybe is a better question. <laughs> In all kinds of ways, you know, he's very, I think I've spoken about it on other interviews I've done. He can be very, um, he can be very particular. He's very detail orientated. He's, he wants to know all the facts before he makes a decision. He'll, he'll go out, he'll like go after something for ages and ages and ages. Like, oh my God, make the decision or get on with it. And then he'll make a decision that's totally off to the other side. And you're like, oh, so. Doesn't make sense. It's contradiction. It, or, yeah. Or it's, or it's brilliantly genius because you think, oh, all that work that you were doing and the decision I would have made and just got on with it and made the decision would have taken us that way and that would have been the wrong way. Mm -hmm. And it's and it's that kind of, you all the way through my career with him, he would do that. And I'd be like, it's just, he's just clever like that. You know, he's he's ferocious appetite for learning. He, unrelenting work ethic. 
you know, mm. expects incredible, sets incredibly high standards and expects people to meet them. And know, all people can, right? No, absolutely. And, and he, and, you know, we openly say that not all people can, there's nothing wrong with not being able to meet them. You've got to be compassionately ruthless. You know, that's what he always says, which is basically if you're not, if you're not, you set a standard and if people can't meet them, then, then they're not in the right organization. And it's better. It's a bit like the arrogant asshole. It's better to be honest with them and say, you know what, this isn't for you than to kind of allow them to keep failing. Mm-hmm. I think that can be very cruel to people. You know, if they're in an environment where they're constantly trying to be better, but they just can't do it. That's, yeah. You talked a lot about, when we t- were talking about winning behaviours, about this important, about high work ethic. And you've, mm. you've expressed there that Dave has a relentless work ethic as well. Yeah. Um, you, you've probably observed how this narrative around hard work has become somewhat toxic over the last yeah. couple of years. And now I... I you know, almost feel bad sometimes when I'm in, when I'm saying that I don't know how I would have been successful in what I've done if I hadn't have worked hard. In fact, yeah. I don't really know anybody that's really successful in their their discipline or their sport or whatever that doesn't work hard. So, I know we're we're not trying to give anyone depression and anxiety by saying that you know they have to be a hustle porn star or they won't be happy. But I still can't get to the point where I will tell anybody that hard work doesn't matter. Yeah, it really really matters to me, and it's. I can't imagine. A, and you know what? I was in the gym last night and I was thinking sometimes words really mess people up. Right. So this, I like when people say work, they think of me on like a, in a factory, like, or in like, like, I don't know, in a mine hammering some rock all day. But I was thinking because I enjoy my work so much, imagine if I just changed the words and went hard pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Can exactly you have well. too much of hard pleasure? That's exactly what well. <laughs> You know what I mean? It sounds dodgy, I know. Let's not go down that route. Sorry, yeah. Um, It's interesting, as you were asking me the question, I think that my response, because I actually, I similarly read something that you'd written about, you you feel a bit of, you feel a bit bad that you sort of heroed the kind of, I'm working yeah, the kind of 18 hours a day and I'm going at it. I bragged about it. Yeah, bragged about it. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I sort of think, I get it. I get why mm. people feel like that. And I think there's a difference between being exceptionally busy mm-hmm. and working all the hours God gives and thrashing yourself and all those sorts of things and working really hard with purpose. Mm-hmm. They're very different. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And, and when you're working really hard with purpose and you're passionate about what you're doing and you love the people you're working with and you're enjoying the, the sort of striving for the achievement, there's no shame in that. That mm-hmm. That's, for me, that's absolutely part of motivated, ambitious people. That's what you want them to feel. Mm-hmm. And people used to say, well, what's the name of the work-life balance? I was like, There's, it, there isn't a work-life balance. My work is my life. And I make no I make no sort of excuse for that. I love it. I'm passionate about it. I enjoy it. I have, it's hard pleasure. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's brilliant. And I like the challenge of it. And I, you know, I chose not to have kids. I don't have a partner. It's, it's the passion point of my life is my work. And that's right. But that doesn't mean I need to be, you know, not going out and seeing my mates. It doesn't mean I need to be up until midnight tapping out emails. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? I can still, I take days off. I, you know, I, I live a normal life, but I work really, really hard. I've, I've also struggled in the relationship department. Yeah. Unsurprisingly. Never, you know, been that good at relationships. I've never been able to hold a relationship down. Um, can't really see how it happens necessarily. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> Talk to me about that part of I was going to call it sacrifice, but when it's somewhat intentional yeah. and when you're aware of it, it's hard to call it sacrifice. Just doesn't motivate me. I know that sounds awful. <laughs> I'm not motivated to have somebody in my life. I'm not motivated to be like, right, I want a partner. I want that companionship. You know, we, when I arrived, we were t- chatting about how this environment that we're all living in, actually, I, I love being on my own. I, 
I'm very happy in my own company. I, I'm very passionate about what I do. And I think that fulfills the space that maybe other people have other have, have other passions for, right? And so, yeah, it's never been a it's never been a goal of mine. I've never dreamt of the white wedding. I've never wanted to. And there's never a bit of me that sits at home and thinks, oh, I wish I had someone to sit and watch telly with, ever. That doesn't, doesn't even cross my mind. And my mates are always like, do you not get lonely or do you not worry? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, I feel like I should because it would make you all feel better. Mm-hmm. But, and you know, about five or six years ago, because everyone was on at me all the time, I'd like did a bit of dating, did some internet, you know, use some apps, everything else. I was like, this, why am I doing this? I'm doing this because society wants me to do this. I'm mm-hmm. doing this because my mates want me to do this. This is bullshit. Um, if it's right, if it's right, it'll come. If it's not, it won't. Did you did you date at all throughout the last, I guess, decade? Did you here and there? But it's like, kill me, you know, sm- <laughs> kill me now. You know that kind of small talk. Oh god, <laughs> it's like my idea of hell on earth. Going and meeting a stranger, having small talk, slightly awkward, with kind of one end game. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And it's like, and I'll know within two minutes if that end game's happening and then I'm like, I don't really need to small talk. <laughs> yeah, 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 you got to sit there for an hour and a half. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We don't need to dress this up. <laughs> so yeah, no, I just, yeah, it just never, yeah, I de- did a little bit, but it's not, it's, I'm not looking for that. And I think if I'm looking, if I, if I wanted, if I wanted to get married, if I wanted to get into a relationship, I, I could, and I'm not, I'm not adverse to it, but I'm just not out seeking it. And I, th- I think you get what you look for, right? Yeah. So other sacrifice, um, Stress. I don't think it's a sacrifice, by the way. I genuinely yeah. don't. No, I, 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 do you know what the reason why? At, when I was younger, I wouldn't have thought it was a sacrifice. And then I started reading all this stuff about the importance of like, you know, 18, 19, and 20, even 24 year old Steve would have thought, you know, I don't need fucking anybody and I can just, I'll be fine on my I'm own. I'm a lone wolf. Yeah. And then I, <laughs> I fully went for the whole recluse thing, yeah. like wholeheartedly. And I was broke. So I had no choice anyway. Yeah. You went <laughs> Howard Hughes. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> So I was broke and I was just on this renegade that was determined to build build businesses. And then I started reading some stuff and it talked about the importance of like meaningful connections and relationships. And I realized that I didn't really have those. And if I was going to become wildly successful, then it would just be me and my Louis Vuitton bag sat, up, sat in my house. And, I, and, and, then, and then I started to change my perspective and thought, Steve, do you know what? You need to create a little bit more openness or balance towards that stuff. So I tried a little bit more. But that doesn't, I see, I see, I have incredibly meaningful relationships and incredible connections. I have my friend, I have like five or six friends who are my world. You know, I mean, I'm mm-hmm. incredibly close to them. They are, their kids are, you know, my godchildren. I feel very, very connected. I don't feel isolated in any way. I don't feel like I'm missing out or mm-hmm. sort of not having, and I, and I actively participate in the lives of my friends' kids and and in my friends' lives. And I think that that's my connection. That's my tribe. Do you know what I mean? And they, and you know, I would go to war for them. And it's, it, I just don't think that that added bit of a companion for me right now, you know, I'm not saying not forever, but I'm not sure that bit for me is something that I need. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's that there's a difference there because I do agree with you. I think you absolutely have to have connection. The human condition is to feel connected, to feel part of something, to, to feel, you know, sort of that, that you'll have a purpose within your community. And I think having your own community and having your own tribe is crucial. I don't think that needs to be through companionship with one other human being. There's a pressure that, as you talked about oh, the societal epic. pressure, you know, and I've got to be honest, right? I'm just going to be completely honest because I would be really dishonest if I didn't say this. I have been guilty of when I have a friend who is struggling in that department, feeling like I need to help them because again, that's my own worldview pressed upon them. I'm thinking, well, in order for you, well, in order for me to be happy, I would need that. So I need to make sure you have that thing, yeah. right? 
That pressure, especially for women, is intense mm. post 30. And it causes a ton of anxiety. I see it in my direct messages from strangers. Um, not easy. Well, it's interesting though. So one, I'm 42 now and mm. the pressure drops away because I think you get to the point where people think it's rude to ask if you're going to have kids because they're like, can you still have kids? Okay, right, fine. <laughs> you get to that age, fine, right? right. But, but certainly all through my 30s, when are you going to settle down? Do you not want to have children? And I, and I feel very, very lucky that I feel the way I do. I've never really had a biological clock that's ticked ever. Mm -hmm. And I've never felt the need for companionship of one other person. Do you see Mm -hmm. what I, I, like I said, my tribe is very important to me, but, and I think that's potentially biological. So I think I'm lucky. I don't, because I do, I have friends who, you know, they would, they're desperate to meet someone. They're desperate to have children. They're desperate to move on to that bit of their life. And I've just never felt like that. So Mm -hmm. it, and I feel very lucky because of that, because I think if I'd have felt like that, my whole life would be very different. Does nurture play a role in that? Because I know it did for me. Yeah. My, my, my parents were toxic for each other. Yeah. Like watching my mum scream at my dad for seven hours a day. Every, my mum's like this African Nigerian woman. And the, the, the decibels she's able to achieve is like gold medal worthy. She is unbelievable at shouting. Right. And she can do this r- amazingly high energetic scream for seven hours a day without flinching. And I watched that as a kid growing up. My dad sat there, this passive English man who didn't say a word ever. And this African woman just just torturing him with this loud sound. And me thinking, like the lesson I learned was relationships are prison. And for, for this is the lesson I learned. Like, for a man, you are trapped and it's torture. Mm-hmm. So anytime when I was young, like 16, a girl would like me and I'd chase her and I'd try and get her on the playground, whatever. The minute she said she liked me, deep feeling inside of me of like escape quick so I would like come up with all these reasons why girls that I'd spent the last year pursuing why we were not right and we couldn't be together and she needed to leave me alone and I I didn't notice that until I was like 25 and then I started to work on that part okay but nurture does that play a role do you think in your views on relationships or men or that whatever or women or whatever I think it probably plays a role in my view of having kids because right. my mum was adopted. Oh, wow. So my mum literally didn't know who her mum and dad was. She was kind of picked out of an orphanage by my grandparents. Wow. Um, and never hadn't, until she had David and I, had never met anyone who looked like her. You know, like we all, you know, connect to our families because we've got similar, similar features, whatever. She'd never had that. Mm-hmm. And so my mum loves my brother and I with a kind of wonderfully oppressive (laughs) kind of dominate and it's you know she she just loves us with everything that she's got because we're with for a whole host of reasons but also I think because we're the only physical you know sort of biological connection she's ever had Mm -hmm. and that love always used to scare me a little bit you know not from her but I used to think like I've got dogs Mm -hmm. and I worry about my dogs and I've got like nine godchildren I've got two nephews and a niece and the minute they get on a plane or they go I'm panicking like what if the plane crashes what if they die what if it's like I can't handle it and I'm like Jesus if I'd have had my own kids that would I wouldn't have been able to handle the that amount of love Mm -hmm. I know that sounds ridiculous but I think that always played quite a big part for me that I was like the responsibility of it the constantly having to worry about it the constant all of my female friends who have kids they live in a state of almost permanent anxiety because mm. they worry about their kids all the time in a in a love way you know it's like that wrong love you have for a puppy <laughs> <laughs> um but it, and i don't think i ever i've never felt that i wanted that in my life i never felt that i needed it and i never felt that i wanted it i always felt quite like no i'm good i've got the the right amount of love going on in my mm. life i don't want that additional responsibility and burden in many ways of having something that 
is always ever present and 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 would cause me I think quite a lot of anxiety is that in part because you have so much responsibility and naturally honestly worry that comes from your other love in life which is your career yeah for sure yeah because that's the way I feel it's like a kid as well I already have one yeah Yeah. and it's why I don't think I need a companion because I already have I get so fulfilled from my job I get so I get so much from that and so much from kind of working in and around people and having that kind of, I've got the community of my friends and the community of my work. And I think those those two things I find very fulfilling. So the idea of having a companion or children or anything else in the mix of that mm-hmm. didn't really ever appeal to me. And interest, I mean, I was I was engaged to be married when my brother got uh, served his ban, so 2004. Oh, wow. And I'd been with the guy for like, I don't know, seven years. And I remember like moving into our, how we bought a house together in Shepherd's Bush and we moved into the house. And I remember like vividly putting the key in the door, turning the lock and thinking, I don't want this. Like, I don't want this. I loved him to bits. He was an amazing guy. But I was like, I don't want this kind of, I don't want to be in a normal life with a normal husband and a house and kids. And I just didn't want it. I wanted something different. I've got a tattoo that says a life less ordinary. I just wanted to just do it differently. And I don't know where that came from, but I've had it my whole life. That kind of, I just don't, I just didn't feel the need to conform to society's kind of pillars of, okay, you go to university and then you're going to get a job and then you're going to meet a guy and then you're going to get married. Then you're going to have kids. I was always like, I'm not interested. Any idea why? No. And I'm fascinated by it because I feel very blessed because of it. Mm. Because it's like I say, I think it's it's given me a freedom that that a lot of people don't have. Had you wanted it, had you wanted that, you know, you know, the typical life that society says people have to live and followed all the, the timelines and milestones. Do you think you would have been able to achieve as much as you have? In- I was in my head, my ego was going, I would have been amazing at it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have been like the boss. <laughs> um, no, because I don't think you can. I don't, I, you know, I'm, I'm a feminist. I'm a, you know, I'm absolutely passionate about equality. I'm passionate about women's ability. You know, women can do anything that men can do and should have the opportunity to do that. But I equally don't think it's possible to have it all. I really don't. I don't think you can have, and I know there are women who do and hats off to them. I think it's, you know, you read about these women in the city who've got like five kids and they're CEOs and Mm -hmm. it's like fair play to you, but I couldn't do that because I would feel constantly compromising and I don't like compromise. And you're obsessive a little bit? in terms of what you, um, your focus? I don't like compromising. I, I Yeah, I probably am. Obs- obsessive makes it sound a bit like it's, it's. I'm not in control of it. Mm. I'm in control. I'm aware of what I'm doing. But it's a bit like I, so I'm, we were talking about having a Peloton and, you know, I kind of feel if I'm going to go all in on my fitness and my health and get lean and everything. So for my 40th, I got like down to 65 kilos. I was like oh, a wow. boss and I was like all over it. But then I was a bit like, oh crap, I've got to do my job as well. And I, I sort of feel like I'm, I'm not great at doing having two or three focuses I can I can go at one thing and be brilliant at it but if I start adding in layers of complexity like I can stay on top of my health I can stay on top of my fitness but I can't if once I start going down the right I'm going to get super lean I find it hard to manage mm. my work do you know what I mean sure. so I, I don't know whether it's obsession or whether it's just myopic I'm myopic sure yeah, yeah. If, if people were to you know people they, they read about you online and they say you know been the CEO of this amazing sports team. You ran your own agency before that. You're now the CEO of Bellstaff. A lot of people, especially young women, are going to think that's exactly what I want to do. They're going to think that's amazing. There's always a disclaimer that comes with all of these things. What is the disclaimer in terms of the cost of the success you've achieved? 
What are the things that, you know, if I'm, you, you would turn to me as a, as a young, um, aspiring, ambitious person and say, by the way, before you follow in my footsteps, here's what you need to know. Do you know what? I wouldn't have fun because I think I'm, really? I, yeah, I really wouldn't. I, I feel exceptionally blessed. I feel really, I love what I do. I've loved the journey I've been on, like all the mistakes I've made. And like I said at the beginning, you know, I've been very, very lucky to be allowed to make all kinds of mistakes and them not follow me around. It's like I've been kind of carried and supported and encouraged to to fail and to try and to do stuff that other people just wouldn't have got the chance to do. So I'd be like, no, go for it. Like, don't, don't worry about it. Like, don't worry about fucking up. Don't worry about making mistakes. Just get on with it. What would you tell me though, that I had to have in terms of my qualities? Would you say, okay, well, if you're going to follow in my footsteps, then you're going to need a little bit of this and a little bit of that. <sighs> it's so hard, isn't it, Stephen? Because you can't follow in someone's footsteps. It's, true. it's impossible. Mm. And that's the thing I think that people... You know, I would say you can't, you can have your own footsteps and you can go and do your own thing. And Jesus, if someone had said to me at 25, this is the career path you're going to follow. I've been like, there's just no, there's no way I could tell someone how they're going to do that. Cause it's bonkers. I explain to people, some you know, people are like, oh, you know, tell me a bit about your background. And I, I hear myself say, saying it and I'm like, that's bonkers. <laughs> so I don't think you can follow in someone else's footsteps, but I do think it's like a bit like a bit at the beginning where I was like, you know, just be yourself, you know, be nice to people be approachable, take the opportunities when they're given to you, recognize that sometimes things are scary and you're going to have to do it scared. And actually change is sometimes the best thing that can happen to you. And, you know, all those things that you read in cliche memes on Instagram, they're pretty much true. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It is. It's, and you've just got to take that approach in life because you're not going to get another one. But it's not easy, Fran. It's a, the stress of your job. It must be pretty intense. You're running now um, a big company that's, you know, in, in the process of like sort of turning themselves around and kind of reinventing themselves to some degree. And I know the stuff that you have to deal with because I've dealt with it. Yeah, but I'm not um, curing cancer. But it's, it, I feel like a lot of it's relative, right? Still, big problems are big problems for relative to the challenge you're facing. So like that's, I guess, tell me about that perspective though, because a lot of people would be like, oh my God, that's a tough, you know, you're in a tough job and there's problems every but I'm day. I'm so lucky, Stephen. That's the thing. I think you're lucky. I'm so lucky. Someone, you know, an incredibly successful man bought a business three years ago and has said to me, it's not working very well. I, I really like what I've seen you do in the two years I've been exposed to you. Could you go and run it for me? It's like, yes, <laughs> yeah, I'll go and do that. What a great opportunity. And I'm, and I'm just, it's, I just feel very lucky. And yeah, there are big challenges and, you know, Brexit at the moment is bonkers and all our shops are shut because of COVID and I'm having to meet and work with new people. But, you know, I wouldn't change it for the world. I think it's, an, I think I'm, I think if you can, and this is where Steve Peters has been so powerful because he's like, it, it's a bit about it not defining you. you just, just try your best. Do, and that was, you know what, uh, Jim Ratcliffe actually texted me. I texted him to say thank you very much for the opportunity. We're not friends. We don't like he hang out. <laughs> we don't hang out. But I just text him and say, thank you so much for the opportunity. This is incredible. Because I hadn't spoken to him about it at all. It was all via sort of, you know, chair, the chairman in the business. And he just, re he just replied and said, Fran, the only thing I can ask you to do is your best. Mm. And you know, when you're like, the freedom of that, the, the op and that's what Dave B's always been like. He's like, you can just do your best, Fran. You can't, there's nothing more you can do in life. And I think if you release yourself of expectations and what's the standard you've got and this is don't get me wrong I did not feel like this for the last 10 15 years this has been in the last probably two years that I started to realize you know what what is the worst that's going to happen like what's the worst case scenario here Bellstar folds let's say or when I was in the cycling team we didn't win the biggest bike race or 
you know, whatever, as long as no one's dying, as long as nothing's, you know, that, as long as people are okay, the people are okay. I'm kind of, I'm kind of all right with it. You know, it's, it's just, it's just life. And one of the things, I I mean, I completely, I completely understand. I I tend to believe that anything, caring about anything beyond your best is like anxiety and worry and useless. Yeah. It's like that Mark Twain quote, isn't it? It's like there's a, men will spend their whole lives worrying about stuff that's never actually going to happen. And isn't it? That's what worry is because you're worrying about something that hasn't even happened yet. Well, that's sort of, um, there's a brilliant Brene Brown podcast where she talks about foreboding joy. And it's this idea that you, something really exciting is happening, but all you're thinking about is shit. What if it goes wrong? Mm. So rather than enjoying the joy of it, the kind of, you know, she she uses the example that she's on the plane to go to her first Oprah appearance. And she's like, I spent the entire plane journey there worrying the plane was going to crash. Then I spent the whole car journey there worrying that I was going to make a mistake on the show or say something stupid. Then I spent the whole time in the green room worrying I was wearing the wrong outfit. And at no point did I stop and think, I'm going on Oprah. This is amazing. <laughs> and, and it's that, isn't it? It's like, I think you can burden yourself with all this responsibility and all these kind of negatives. And actually it's like, we just want an opportunity. Why don't you try and flip it, try and see the world in a bit more of a positive light. And I feel like that, that's something I'm really working on for myself. Cause I just think, like I say, we only get one of them. You get this one opportunity. I've been very lucky. There's nothing in my life, touch wood, that has caused real trauma or, you know, that I feel that I would go back and change. Mm-hmm. And I think when you're halfway through, that's not a bad place to be. You took the job. Uh, in the middle of COVID, in the midst of COVID? Yeah, it was oct- October the 1st I started. October the 1st, that's brave. <laughs> in retail. I know, look, I'm crazy. That's, that's well, yeah, yeah. brave. I know. <laughs> but being positive, being optimistic about it, you're coming into this business and it's, um, I mean, it's been smashed in all directions by yeah. all things. Um, what's your, what's your, what's your, what's your approach? What's your strategy? What are you thinking? I mean, at the moment, well, the first sort of three months in the business, I just wanted to get to know everyone there. So I did one-to-ones with everyone. I think it's really easy to kind of go into a business with preconceptions of what's gone wrong and what what you'd fix. And I tried, I spoke to all the kind of mentors I've worked with over the years and said, like, what, what would you, and they all gave me the same advice, which was speak to people, listen, don't make any rash decisions, you know, wait, get a, get a proper plan, but give it, you know, the kind of hundred days piece. And initially I was a bit like, I don't need to do that. And actually you just really do, you know, so I've just spent just trying to understand how it works. And the other thing is understand the industry, you know, like I, I literally knew nothing about the other than I buy clothes. I didn't know anything about fashion. So, so yeah, so, and now my, my plan is I, you know, as is always my ambition, I want to do the best possible job of it. I believe in Bellstaff as a brand. Um, I think it's an incredible brand with an incredible history. I think the product is amazing. I think the design team have been doing a, a brilliant job over the last three years, getting the product to a place that's really true to who we are as a company. Um, and I and I would really love to take it to profitability and beyond. You know, I really I really believe that it's possible to do that. And I think you know we're lucky to have the backing of Jim and Ineos to support us through what is going to be quite a significant period of transition and change. Mm-hmm. But then I think we build the foundations for growth and go from there. And retail's changed a lot. Yeah, totally. How does, I was, you know, thinking about the high street and how, you know, in e-commerce and the internet now, like there's, we saw Debenhams being bought by Boohoo and ASOS have just bought Top Man and some of the other Arcadia brands. It's a moment of transition that's been accelerated by this pandemic. What's your thinking about the changes in retail? I mean, God, I'm so early to it that it's, you know, but I mean, 
I think like anything, it's just, I think it's accelerated what was happening anyway, mm -hmm. right? Like we, the high streets were, were dying. People were moving online. I think the rapidity of that change has just been, you know, it accelerated massively. So people's behavior around how they're shopping was, was on the cusp of quite significant change. And I think that change has flipped massively. So, you know, people are much, much happier shopping online, even like an older generation who historically wouldn't have been. I do fundamentally believe when we all start opening up again, people are really going to want to go shopping. Do you know what I mean? I think people are going to, this idea that people aren't going to go to the shops, I, I'm not sure I buy it because I think it's like, yeah, let, you want to get out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, go yeah. and do yeah. stuff. Even you might want to, Stephen. <sighs> well, there's always hope, <laughs> isn't there? You know, I see shopping as not actually for the purpose of shopping. I see it as an experience. Yeah. And I see the internet as a place where if I, more, almost the utility and shopping yeah. is like a thing yeah. to do, right? Yeah, exactly. So I do, I do wonder if retail will, will seize hold of that part and that be the experiential like, an experience. Bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly i think that it's going to have to because i don't think it's ever going to be there to be making money so i think it's going to be about adding on the experience of the brand for people particularly for our brand you know we we can create an experience and a story and a narrative that other brands maybe can't you know we're 96 years old yeah, so legacy yeah we've got all of that heritage that i think we can speak to so i think i definitely think that experiential piece will be quite a, a big play over the next few years this is a morbid question but I like to ask it sometimes. I think it sometimes, um, are you scared of dying? No. No. Are you? No. Hmm. I was when I was religious up until about 18 years old. And then once I realized that I was going to the same place that I came from, which was nothingness and peace, it, it was quite a liberating feeling. And I, okay. I thought death was actually, I would dare I say it, not a good thing, but um, yeah. not something to be scared of. I, interestingly, I had, so uh, when would it have been? So three, three years ago, I crashed my bike. And landed on my head. And I got like, I mean, I'm, for some reason, whenever I crash my back, I land on either my face or my head. Oh, <laughs> and gosh. I landed on my head. It's all um, brains. It's just like <laughs> <laughs> I wish. And um, our team doctor at the time was like, because I'd got a bit of concussion. He was like, I think you should go and get a brain scan. Uh, he's very overcautious. So I went and got an MRI and my, they made my mum come up because I don't have a husband. So I have to, when that's, you know, that's the one <laughs> downside actually to being single is that whenever you have to have like somebody come and look after you, it's like, mum, <laughs> I'm 42 years old, but please, could you come and stay at my house? Um, so my mum had had to come up because of the concussion. I wasn't allowed to go home on my own. And I got this phone call from a brain surgeon who had been given my MRI. They looked at my MRI and they'd found all these patches in my brain. And he was like, there's these, we've found, is, are you, he rang me and he's like, are you with someone? And I was like, yeah. And he's oh like, oh, we've got, God, yeah. And he's like, we've got, ever <laughs> I know, right? I was <laughs> like, <tell> bedside <laughs> manner needs improving. <laughs> yeah. um, and he said, um, we've got your brain scans, we've gone through them and there's, we're seeing changes in your brain. And you know, when you're like, but I've never had an MRI, so how can you, how mm. can you have, how, how are there changes? Anyway, long story short. I've got all of these unusual patterns in my brain that are like patches that could be, they, they were like, they could be potentially the starts of tumours. They could be just your, I know, right? They could, and so he went Excuse through this. Excuse me, rude. <laughs> I had to go and like, so I went with my best mate actually and go and meet the brain surgeon. He talked us through it. And I mean, she, it was one of those hilarious and horrible situations all at the same time because he was sort of going through, because she she works in the NHS and she was like, but what, could, what else could it be? If it's not tumours, what else could it be? And he was like, well, you know, have you ever been like a very heavy drug user? And we were both like, no. And she was like, does, <laughs> does weed... Yeah, she was like, does weed... I was like, Lizzie, we don't need to go into this. He means heroin. <laughs> she was like, oh, yeah, no, no, we've never done heroin. Um, and so we, and she was asking all these questions. And so basically I had about a year period where they weren't sure what it was. They still aren't. I still have them. 
and it's symptom-based. So they're like, we could do biopsies and see what it is. And I'm like, no, nah, you're all right. Um, or, or if I ever develop symptoms, which would be, you know, sort of electric pulsing or anything like that. And I think that period was quite good for me because it, and it's probably where a lot of the positivity and the actually doing you know what you only get one chance thing came from because I, I was a bit like, shit, if I have tumours growing in my brain, that's quite intense. And what does that mean for my life? Like, what would I change? Like, what would I do differently? And I genuinely, I remember being sat in my living room, having everyone had gone home by this point, And I sort of had had my first proper other, it was like a two hour MRI, which is quite intense. Mm. And I was like, you know, what? I wouldn't change anything. I would carry on living my life the way I live it now. I wouldn't change anything. I would I would probably go deeper and harder in some of the things that I really enjoy because I like my job and seeing my mates. I would keep spending the money the way I spend it. I, they would, I literally wouldn't change anything. And I was like, and it felt, it literally felt quite freeing. It was like, great. This is, a, this is good. Because I think a lot of people would get that kind of diagnosis and be like, right, shit, what, what do I need to do differently? And I didn't have anything that I thought, no, I, wanna, I don't want to change. Mm. But interestingly, I, my, my job has now changed. And I think deep down, the reason I had the chairman conversation, the reason I was willing to say yes to this opportunity at Bellstaff is had I maybe not had that incident and had all of that associated thinking and sort of bit of deep, deep sort of soul searching, I maybe wouldn't, I maybe would have said, no, it's right, I'll stay at cycling. Mm. But I just thought, you know what? Fuck it. Let's go and give it a try. What a what an absolute blessing that is to know to know that you wouldn't change anything. Yeah. I think I am um, I have this sand timer. Is it behind me somewhere? Is it there? It's usually sat behind me. But the reason I have a sand timer in my house is because it's that sort of visual, it's the only way you can really see time. At some point I realized that um I was getting older and that you don't notice and that you can fall into the trap of thinking. And as I think most people do, that will just like live forever. Yeah. And it's not until you realize that life is finite, you have those, those moments that you realize that, you know, like at some point I'm going to die. And yeah. seeing my time pouring away is that reminder of like, is this important? And am I making the right decisions? And am I living true to myself? Um, and I wrote a little article about that called Deathbed Thinking, which pretty much says the same thing, which is that giving you that perspective of yeah. from your deathbed, potentially, you know, what, what really matters remarkable um I, I mean i'm so i'm so inspired by your story and every time i sit down with someone um who's uh, become a success in their career or their you know their pursuit i it, it feels like there's similar themes but so so different in so many ways what what does the future hold for you do you think do you know <sighs> any ideas are you gonna end up uh, world domination right no, is that, <laughs> no i would believe you if you said that that's the funny thing i took that seriously i don't know what the future holds and I don't really mind. Mm. Like I don't mind. I sort of as long as as long as my family and friends are healthy and happy, mm. and as long as you know, actually that's all that matters. As long as my friends and family are happy and healthy, and then I'm pretty cool with whatever the world throws at me. I'm I'm sure it will be a laugh. It'll be fun. Everyone else seems to need a plan. No, there's five year plan, three year plan. I, don't get me wrong. I used to have five year plans, <laughs> yeah. but they're all hilarious. And I go back and look at my five year plans. I'm like, oh, I love how ambitious I was. <laughs> Like, where's that yacht? <laughs> really good at a yeah. yacht. Okay, I think when I was a kid, I was very, sure. I remember actually when I set my agency up, my best mate and I set it up together and we got a coach and we were about 22, 23. Mm. And the coach was like, right, go off into separate rooms and write out where you want to be in 10 years time and then come back in and read them to each other. And we were best mates. Like we'd lived together for like three or four years. 
set a business up together. He was dating my best friend. We came back in and he, and we had them both written, like, written on a piece of paper, like holding them <laughs> from each other. And he was like, right, I want to be running a successful business, earning a good salary. I want to be living in a nice house with a wife and three children. Um, and I want to be healthy and happy. And I was like, oh, fuck. You've done it, your listeners. <laughs> I was just like, like... <laughs> I want a yacht and a jet. I want to have loads of money. Yeah, I was literally, I had this like really materialistic list about wanting to be like successful and a global sensation and have all this money and all this. How was, old? 23, 22, 23. W- Did you have stuff growing up? Material stuff? Money. Yeah, we were quite, not, I mean, when my, cause my dad, my dad was in the RAF. Mm. So to begin with, you know, middle class, but then when he left to go to Hong Kong, he went into civil aviation in the kind of the glory years of the expats. So right. definitely very, very lucky in that I got, you know, business class travel everywhere. Oh, and wow. Yeah. So it, it was pretty next level. Yeah. It's incredible that you've you've wanted it for for, for such a, a so long bad. Time. But, but now I wouldn't sense. want I wouldn't want that list now. But it was just it was that really interesting. Like oh okay, we want to- totally different things. And I'm I didn't have partner. I didn't have kids. I didn't have a nice house anywhere. I was like I wanted the I wanted the universe. Do you know what I mean? I want to go over there and do something massive. Well, you've smashed it, Fran, and I'm sure you've you've been paid well along the way for that. Um, <laughs> money. The money becomes irrelevant though, right? The money is not. The money is just a great tool. For- for helping my friends and family, for doing cool stuff with people, for having experiences. For I, I spend all the money I earn doing stuff with the people I love. Give me an example. Uh, took my sister-in-law to Dubai for her 40th birthday with my best mate. We stayed on the palm with an amazing time. I've uh, sort of took my brother back to Hong Kong for his 40th. I take my friends on holidays. I, yeah, I just go and do stuff with the people. I love. I love experiences. I spend my money on experiences, going and doing stuff, seeing stuff, but always with the people I love. And none of my mates can afford to go to the hotels I go to. So I'm always like, well, I'll just pay because I don't want to stay in a rubbish hotel. So. <laughs> <laughs> I can relate. <laughs> well, listen, thank you so much for all of your time today. It's been truly fascinating. And even, you know, researching your background and your mindset has been um, really, really inspiring and, and energizing for me. And I can relate to so many elements and the other, other elements I'm just amazed and impressed by. So thank you for your time. I know you're an incredibly busy person, so it feels like an additional honor for you to have said uh-huh. yes to come and chat to me today. Um, and where can people find you? I guess just, you know, these days it's pretty easy. You just Google someone's name, but yeah, I don't do, I, I have a private Instagram and I do, I'm on Twitter, but I don't really use it very often. So, right. and I'm rubbish with LinkedIn. Well, if they want to speak to you enough, I'm sure they'll find, they'll find me. Knocking. They'll find me. Yeah. And thank, thank you so much for inviting me. It's been fascinating. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. one decision away from taking your business to the next level and a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud so you can access it from anywhere and the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky 
and it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode.